This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Komarniski about her new book, Mexicans in Alaska, an ethnography of mobility, place, and transnational life, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2018. In the interest of full disclosure, I should note that I have a connection to Dr. Komarniski's book, as it was published as part of a series on the anthropology of contemporary North America that I co-edit for University of Nebraska Press. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm Carrie Lane, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Komarniski about her new book, Mexicans in Alaska, an Ethnography of Mobility, Place, and Transnational Life, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2018. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should note that I actually have a connection to Dr. Komarniski's book because it was published as part of a series on the anthropology of contemporary North America that I co-edit for University of Nebraska Press. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Um, So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you were born, went to school, uh, your life outside this one book, if you will. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm Canadian. I grew up, um, I was born and grew up in Western Canada, um, in Alberta. I grew up in a small town um, in that province and, and later on moved to the city of Edmonton. That's the capital of Alberta. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting because that's really far away from either Mexico or Alaska. And so <laughs> it definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm not of a Mexican background. Um, my family is, is Ukrainian um, heritage. And so, uh, and so that's, that's kind of where I'm from. Um, but I, I, when I went to school in Edmonton, I, I studied Latin American studies. And my thinking going back as an 18-year-old, kind of leaving a small town and going to the city to go to university, um, I, I really didn't know very much about Latin America. Um, but I wanted to, and that actually um, led me to choose Latin American studies as as a major. Uh, I learned learned Spanish uh, at university, and uh, when I was done my undergraduate degree, I, um, I I wanted to learn more, so I carried on. I went to um, Winnipeg, Manitoba, another Canadian city um, on the prairies. Um, and uh, I started working with a with a professor there named Dr. Raymond Wiest, and he he was he was U.S. American. Um, he had grown up in California, and he'd done research um, uh, in in Michoacan in Mexico. And so um, and so I, I started working with him, and and that's how I kind of got on this track. Um, but I'm I'm off my myself now. I'm already talking about my project, um, but. Uh, 
but how can I help it? I, I, I love this project so much. Um, anyway, aside from that, I, I'm also um, a mother. Um, I have a young daughter um, who was born um, just as I was finishing up the, the final draft of this book. Um, and uh, I, I got my PhD from, from UBC uh, in Vancouver. Um, and I currently live in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. I'm back back in the north, um, still far away from, from Anchorage, Alaska, where I did research, but, but definitely, um, definitely in the north. Okay, great. Um, well, let's talk about your book now. Let's talk about uh, Mexicans in Alaska, an ethnography of mobility, place, and transnational life. So what sparked the initial idea for the book? So I'm going to go back. I, I kind of left off um, talking about how I went to um, to Winnipeg to go to school at the University of Manitoba with uh, with Ray Wiest. And um, when I started that program, I, I had conceptualized a project. I wanted to do research about food. I wanted to do research about food and eating. Um, this was in you know, 2003, and and the anthropology of food and eating was was becoming a thing, and and it had really captivated me because I had seen big changes even in my own life. You know, having grown up in a rural area, never having seen sushi or an avocado, to it becoming kind of like commonplace food um, once I once I moved to the city, I guess. Anyhow, long story short, I started working with Ray, and he um, he was just going back to um, his research. Um, on Mexican migration, as I said, he he had done research in Michoacan in the '60s and '70s, and at, uh, late late in his career, so this was kind of getting he's getting close to retirement. He had um, started a new project about transnationality, and and he was going to um, revisit um, some of the same same people, the same community, Acuicio del Canje in Michoacan. He wanted to revisit migration there and, and use a transnational frame to do that. And um, I came on as a, a new student of his, and he kind of said, you know, how would you like to go to Alaska? I've always wanted to follow up with with people there and, and never have had the chance. And, you know, he had another student who was going to go and do her research in, in Mexico, in Acuicio. And he said, how would you like to go to Alaska? And I said, sure. Um, you know, why not? I, I was in my early 20s and, and, and up for up for the adventure, I guess. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I can I had a project that was about um, food and eating. And I, I wanted to talk to people from from this town in in Mexico, Acuicio. I wanted to talk to them about um, how, you know, how their how their food experience was different in Alaska. And, and to tell you the truth, going into the um, going into the field that first time, I really didn't know what to expect. Um, I, um, I, I didn't know what Alaska was going to be like. I didn't know what, what the people's lives were going to be like or anything like that. And I remember one of my first days in town, I was staying at this hotel and I walked across the street to the, um, like to a little convenience store. And I found, um, you know, all kinds of Mexican products there. Um, and tortillas made by a, a tortilleria actually, um, in Anchorage. And this just kind of, kind of blew my expectations out of the water, I guess you could say. I, I, I was really surprised by this. And, um, and anyway, long story short, that kind of thing is what, 
led me to to kind of carry on. I, I did write an, uh, a master's thesis about food and eating. Um, and the title was Eating Transnationally. And I kind of, I tracked the kinds of foods that people brought with them because people do bring, um, you know, suitcases full of full of ingredients from their hometown to Alaska because the taste, the taste just isn't the same um, when you buy it, uh, when you don't get it from, from the hometown kind of thing. And, and anyway, but... Um, after that, uh, every time I would talk about my research, I encountered the same kind of surprise that I myself encountered on that first trip across to the corner store when I arrived in Alaska. I would talk about my work and, and talk about uh, people from Aquizio who live and work in Alaska. And and people kind of stop, people of all walks of life really would kind of stop and say, what, look, there's Mexicans in Alaska. How do they get there? What do they do there? Like, it, anyway, I that sort of sent me back to do a PhD and, and, and sent me back to, um, to, to, to go to UBC to, to finish this work, the university of British Columbia, because I, I couldn't really answer people's questions, right. I, I had focused on food and eating and I, and I cooked with people and I learned about the food, but I didn't know, you know, what were the kind of histories, what was the history of migration between these two places? How is it that people from Acuizio, which is a, it's a small town in the, um, mountains in, in Michoacan, about a half an hour from Morelia, the capital city there. Like, how is it that there's so many people from this town um, in, in Alaska? And, and yeah, people, people would ask me, they were surprised, and I couldn't answer. And that kind of, that, that sent me back. And that's, that's what sparked it. And I started the book that way, the opening, I, I opened the book with some vignettes that kind of play on those different kind of moments where people were we're surprised where people are expressing like, really, there's there's Mexicans in Alaska. And even, you know, um, people from places elsewhere in Mexico, um, they're surprised that their own countrymen are all the way in in Alaska. That's great. Uh, well, and I do I want to ask you a bit in a moment about the the ethnographic process, the, the research that you engaged in. But but before we do that, I just sort of want to get a visual of the, your writing process, sort of what, so you've, you've decided to study this topic, you're going to write a book on it. What does your writing process look like? Do you write on paper first, by computer? How, how does it start for you? Wow. Well, well, this book started out as, um, as, as a, a dissertation, as a, as a graduate disser- dissertation. And so I started writing it. Um, let me think, I'm going to have to go way back to 2000 and, uh, 2012. So 2012, I finished a year of, of fieldwork in both Anchorage and in, in Aquizio. I, I started off in Aquizio um, with uh, people when people from Alaska were there. Um, and then I traveled back with them and uh, and spent the rest of the year in, in Anchorage. So I, I traveled with the people. But again, I'm getting on to research methods. We could talk about that later. But anyway, when I when I returned to um, returned to Canada after field work, um, right, you, you're tasked with putting this all together. And if I think back to those early days, I really, um, I started with the stories, like the moments, the things that happened um, during during my field work that really, um, yeah, I guess set the scene for the kind of bigger questions or, or bigger um, bigger idea I wanted I wanted to pull out in each chapter. And so i i would I would start um, I would start writing there, and and I was working on a computer. Um, 
I was, uh, I would work in my, in just Microsoft Word um, and start kind of writing out, you know, something, um, start writing out that story, I guess. Um, and, and, and then I would go through like kind of multiple versions. I, I would, I would work on computer and then I would print it off and edit it. And this is something that my supervisor, um, at the university of British Columbia, Gaston Gordillo, he, he really, um, pointed out to me. And at first I, I wasn't printing things out, um, to read them on, on actual paper. And he said, you know, print it out and read it and, and you'll, you'll see a difference. It's a different thing to read, read your writing on a, on a piece of paper. Um, and I did that. And, and so that, that really has become part of my post, my writing process too. Um, yeah. So, so this book was, I guess I could say kind of multiple iterations. It, it was a dissertation and then it was, um, revised, a few times, um, before it became, um, before it became a book in the, in the form that it's in today. Well, and, you know, I'd love to talk about the book and, and the form that it's in sort of move through chapter by chapter, because you do so, um, elegantly open each of these chapters with different vignettes from your field work, really bringing those stories alive, I think, through your writing. Um, and so in chapter one, you discuss Mexican Alaska as a transnational field site. And, and I wondered if you could tell us what is Mexican Alaska and how did you go about conducting this multi-sided ethnography? Yeah, so I guess, you know, I, I, I don't know if uh, listeners can, can you know, look at the cover of the book, but I, I love the cover of this book because to me it really kind of visually evokes what, what Mexican Alaska is. And, and so in the foreground, you have a, a photograph of Acuizio del Canje. This is the town uh, where I worked and where many people are from uh, in, in, in Alaska, from Mexico. And, and this, this photo is superimposed onto a mountain from Alaska. And so it's that idea of like, these places being brought together into into a single kind of space. The the people that I work with, their lives really do um, really do encompass both places so um, so powerfully. Like it's it's actually and and that's why starting with the stories and showing the everyday lives, it really um, that was something I really wanted to show. I wanted to show people that you know everyday life really extends all the way across the continent. And, and this is everyday life for, for people. Um, and so that's why I love the cover of the book as it, um, as it, as it is, but it also, um, it also, um, extends across time periods. So the, the photo in the foreground of, of Acuizio, it's from the 1970s and, and the mountain in the background, that's a contemporary photo from, from the 2000s. And so another thing that I, I really work to, I, I guess, help people understand and, and to, to show in this book is that there's a really interesting history there and, and multiple generations of, of people from Acuizio have built up this Mexican Alaska, this, this transnational space over time. Um, and, so, and so that became a really important part of the book, too. Definitely. Well, and, I, you know, it's easy to think of Acuizio and Anchorage as sort of these very distant, categorically opposed cities, just so different in so many ways. But for the people who moved between them, as you described, they actually see many parallels between those two cities. And so could you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, that was so fascinating to me. I mean, in addition, so one one major similarity is, you know, you can move within a similar social circle in both places, right? There are enough acquiescences in Alaska that, you know, you you encounter people from your town, um, you know, in at, at Fred Meyer grocery store or or wherever. Um, and so, you know, that's that's one similarity is just like the social world really extends and and so too in 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 Aquizio, right? Like, you know, you can you can be walking down the street and, and run into someone that also lives in Alaska. And so, you know, the two two people can connect there. And and myself also I found that there. I have a part in here where I write about, you know, what happens when um you know, when people from Alaska aren't there, like I'm still in Aquizio, I'm still in the same town, but it's a, it's a different space for my field site anyway, in terms of this project, right? That, that connection, like the, the people have gone, gone back home, gone back to their other home, <laughs> to one of their homes um, in Alaska. And so anyway, long story short, it's that social space that extends. And so, you know, you can, you can see that, um, you can see that in, in the everyday life of the people. But other things too, like um, talking about, you know, the, the natural setting and the mountains and, and those kinds of things. Those are things that people appreciate about their hometown in Mexico. And it's equally what they appreciate about um, about Anchorage, um, you know, the mountains and, and the clean water and the, um, you know, outdoor activities and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, those, those things, um, people, people really draw us those similarities out. And I think that's the kind of stuff that you really wouldn't, like, I certainly wouldn't have recognized that. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about both of these places. Definitely. Well, and, and in chapter two, you, you sort of turn your focus to the experience of mobility, migrations by car and plane, and the, the strategies of mobility, as you call them, that people use to navigate traveling between these two places. Yeah, in this one, and I really wanted to to talk about how people actually move and, and what that experience is like. And I came to learn that, you know, it's actually, there's a whole set of almost well, not almost, but there's a whole set of like skills and knowledge about traveling, right? When you travel so regularly and you know the flight itineraries and you're like, you know, you know, that's, that's all a, a kind of knowledge. And so when you grow up um, moving between these two places and, and I should say like, you know, at, at this point in time, um, the families that I worked with, they, they do travel back and forth to their hometown, I'd say at least once a year, um, sometimes maybe more than that. And, and they're able to do so because, um, they're, they're, um, either permanent residents or, um, dual citizens of both countries. And so they're able to move in ways that, um, that, that many unfortunately aren't. Um, and so, and so that's part of it too. It's, it's about like, what is this experience of travel like for these people? And I personally felt like that was, a, that was something that was kind of left out of, of other um, work that I'd read. There's a lot of work on really specific mobilities across the borderland region itself. But then after that, you know, we, we don't know, we don't, you know, it's, it doesn't seem of interest, you know, how people are traveling. But I was, I was fascinated by like, the really long distance travel and, and, you know, that people do drive and have driven and continue to drive between these two places. And so what that is like, and, and um, yeah, so that was, 
that was my hopes in that chapter. And I, I, I focused on two. I focused on a family flying by air and, and I took that trip with them. We all flew together, which was really fun. Uh, and then I, I, I also talked about a, a story of a man uh, who drove all the way. Um, and this was um, a, quite a few decades ago. He was one of the first people to go um, to Alaska from, from Aquizio. And, and so he talked about a, a trip that he took on the Alaska Highway all the way from yeah, from Anchorage back to his hometown. And then, you know, other mobilities too. I, I found it really interesting how, you know, even the process of getting citizenship or um, permanent residency, it, it also requires a mobility. Like you have to go to, um, to, to the border basically um, and to, to re-enter and, and to go through all of this, um, this bureaucratic process. And so, yeah, I, I really wanted to bring that, uh, bring that all back in um, because again, those questions that sent me back um, back to the field, back to these questions, you know one of the things that people would always ask is you know well, how do people get there? So I guess that was that was it too. I wanted to be able to answer that question um, well. <laughs> well and, and I think in doing that you really do what you set out to do, which is you complicate the model of what Mexican immigration looks like or can looks like in terms of the migration itself and the work that is done and, and the people whom are doing it. And, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so in chapter three, you sort of turn a bit and trace the experiences of mobility over time uh, by following the experiences of three generations of a single family. And as you state in your introduction, th there's this misperception that the presence of Mes Mexicans in Alaska is something new. But as you described, their families whose members have been traveling back and forth between Michoacan and Alaska since the 1960s. So tell me a bit about that history and the multi-generational kin and communal networks it has created. Yeah. And actually, um, that is that is that is my favorite chapter and and in a lot of ways for me um the the core of this work and and um you know not everyone has the that kind of long um multi-generational history but i really wanted to get a sense of that because there there are um in anchorage you know some families who have that long longer history there. And so I wanted to understand better, okay, so how did that happen in the first place? And and what what was different kind of o over the generations? And so um, the family I talk about, the the Bravo family, it's um it's kind of a composite of a of a few families, but but more based on 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 one in particular that I that I know really well. Um, and you know like like many, um, you know, it's, this, these patterns started out with, uh, with with mostly men who were leaving on their own to go to the United States to to work. And uh, from Aquizio specifically, there were there were a group of men. I I'm not sure exactly how many, but five five or six, and they had been working elsewhere in the United States when when the idea came up to go to Alaska, uh, and they you know, they, they did go. And, and part of it was they could earn um, almost double the wage for the same amount of work they were doing. So like washing dishes and janitorial type work. Um, but, um, but it was also, you know, they, they obviously had a bit of an adventurous spirit because this was the, the fifties actually, um, when, when these men started out going there. And so, you know, 
to me, it was so fascinating to to meet these men, um, interview them, and hear about this time because this was a time when Alaska was really being um, built up as a state. Right, Alaska wasn't a state. Um, before uh, 1949. And and after statehood, um, you know, there were many kind of, you know, mega projects going on. And, and, and some of these men were, were part of those things. So, um, and, and like huge, important things in the way that the state's history are told. Um, these men were there and, and participated in that too. So they have um, stories about the um, Alaska earthquake and, and what that was like. Um, they have stories about working on the Alaska highway. Um, one man, he worked at um, Amchitka, Amchitka Island where there was nuclear testing going on. He, he was a cook, um, but he was, he was part of that. And, and all others who worked on um, the Alaska pipeline too, which became, you know, a, a really important economic um, driver driver in the state. So I just I saw um, I saw the experiences of these men and a real um, chance to, I guess, again complicate the way that um, Alaska history is talked about. And and actually in the introduction, I try and push it back even further than that. So beyond these um, these families specifically from Acuizio. You know, Alaska is a, a really diverse place and, and has been for a long time. It's just, um, I think, I think the way we think about it um, kind of occludes that, but we can get back to that. Anyway, so these men who were who were working in Alaska, um, they, they started out in kitchens and in janitorial work. But, you know, in in the end, um, you know, especially after the earthquake, there was a lot of work in construction to, to rebuild everything that had been shaken apart. And then, um, you know, other construction projects, like I mentioned, and, you know, they they were doing well for themselves. And, and while they were working in, in Alaska, they also, you know, they had families growing up in their, in, in, in Aquizio, and, and they were able to, um, to, to get papers for their kids. And it's really interesting because, you know, that older generation, they, they you know, it, I talk about how in the Bravo family, the, the son, so the son of the, the one who went, his father went in the 50s, uh, early 60s. And then the son said, like, you know, my father, even though he arranged papers for me to go to the United States, he didn't actually want me to go. He wanted me to stay in in Mexico and study and, and make a life there. Um, but the son didn't want to do that, right? He 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 said he pretty much immediately as soon as um, as soon as he could he he went to Alaska too, and that's really interesting because you know you have people who like they haven't worked in other parts of the United States, um, you know, the, the kind of second generation of people, um, they, they maybe tried to make a life in Mexico too, but didn't work out. And I describe how, you know, kind of structural factors in the economy made it really hard to, to make a life in Mexico and, and kind of, um, pushed people North and, and that's been well documented elsewhere. But the fact that, um, that yeah, like they 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 talk about how they knew they were going to go to Alaska specifically, um, and and they did. Um, but that second generation was a bit different from the first because they um, they they brought their families with them. So you know you can see a bit of a shift there too in in terms of um, I guess just you know what what kind of family life people want to build for themselves. And so um, you know they they did bring their their 
their their families um, eventually with them to Alaska, and and then then we have the third generation. And I, I talk to like young people who, you know, may have been born in Mexico, may have been born in Alaska, but who have grown up and and you know pretty much spent their whole lives. Um, you know, between these two places, you know, going to school in in Alaska, but not always because some families um, have moved back and forth more than others um, and have actually spent major periods of time in Mexico and then moved back to Alaska. And, and so that, that whole story, that to me is the, is the real like life of, of the, of the book and, and of the project. And, and, you know, I just, the, I admire so much um, these these people, and and I find I find the way they live amazing, and they're also some of the nicest people you've ever met. So, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, and in chapter four, you make it really clear that living these transnational lives is is not easy. And it's a process that sort of has to be learned in a way. So you describe the processes by which people get used to living transnational lives, how they get used to the money, the paperwork, acquiring and maintaining properties in both places, and the everyday differences of weather and culture and clothing and language. Um, and so tell me about these processes of, of getting used to transnational life. Yeah, and this was something that that um, that people always talk about, um, and it's a phrase um, that that's like "uno tiene que acostumbrarse." You have to you have to get used to it. Is the way that I translated it, and I heard this word "acostumbrarse" all the time. And so when I was writing, it really like I wanted to show that you know, although I say you know yes, like people have built a life across these places. They've they've got dual citizenship. They're able to travel. They own homes in both places. Um, you know, they're they're trying to raise their kids. Um, you know, to know where they're from and and really have those connections in the hometown, as well as you know, make a make a life in in Anchorage. Um, it isn't. It really isn't easy. And the level at which you know, you have to navigate um, two two bureaucracies. You have to, um, you know, you you want your kids to be good at Spanish in and also good at English and succeed um, in 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 the school system in the United States. And just the many 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 ways that, um, like the I guess the hard work of 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 doing this uh, of living of living this way. Um, and I guess, I mean, it's kind of funny to say that because I, I don't know if people would call it, call it work, but I, I, not in the sense of, you know, like labor for, uh, like, like labor at a job, but anyway, I, I just, um, I wanted to point to the fact that, and complicate like that it's actually not so easy. So my whole focus was on kind of, you know, showing the everyday lives of these people to really, um, explode preconceptions of what Alaska is like and what Mexicans in, in the United States are like. But I, but I couldn't, you know, 
I couldn't show it as just like a seamless, easy process because because people do struggle. You know, you it could be such a long time to get the right certifications. And I know I write in that one about um, about one woman who's who wants to be a hairdresser, and you know, and and I I it's a few pages where I'm writing about her, but realistically it took years because she came to Alaska. She had to learn English. um, She had to, you know, get her papers sorted. She had to then get her hairdressing papers sorted because you can't just be a hairdresser. You have to get, you know, board certified in, in, um, in Alaska and they wouldn't recognize her training in Mexico. So she had to do training again. And then, you know, at the end she was able to become a hairdresser. She, she cuts hair in, in Anchorage, but I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's not easy. Was was the point to that, and and that process of of acostumbrarse, getting used to it. Um, I was using that to kind of bring together a bunch of ways um, in which people talked about, you know, ha- you know, getting getting to that point. I guess. Right. Well, the the next chapter, chapter five, uh, is actually my favorite. Um, So you titled this one, The Stuff of Transnational Life. And this is where you look at what people bring with them, literally in their suitcases, in their carry-ons, as they move back and forth between Mexico and Alaska. So what do they bring with them each way and why? Oh, my. Well, you know, all kinds of things, but, but specific things too. And, and this chapter, I, I talked about my, um, my earlier work about food and transnationality. And, and in that work, I really got a sense of, you know, the, 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 the food that people travel with and, and why they do that. And so food is a big one, but, um, but especially foods like mole. So mole, um, you know, as a specific kind of mole, um, but it's, it's, it's made, it's made in a cuizio cheese. Um, cheese is another one and, uh, it candy, um, different things that either aren't really available in Anchorage or that don't have the right taste. Um, uh, and that's a, yeah, that's all about kind of like about place and, and the way in which places and, and flavors, you know, are linked to each other. Maybe even that concept of like terroir, ter- ter- how do you say it? Um, like where like wines have particular flavors from particular regions. I mean, this is, this is the case for, for cheese and, and for mole and it's just not made the same um, elsewhere. So, um, so food, food is a big one. Um, but, you know, other things too, um, people brought, um, like decorative items back and forth. And I found it really interesting that in, um, in, in Mexico, people often had their houses decorated with stuff from Alaska. So, you know, moose and bears and, and pictures of, of mountains and snow and that kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, the reverse was true in Anchorage, you know, you would see kind of, um, handicrafts and, and other things from Mexico decorating someone's home in Alaska. And I, and I asked someone, you know, you know, why do you do this? And and he basically said, well, because when we're in either place, you know, we really miss the other place. And so, um, and so that's why, that's why, that's why we travel like that. I mean, 
it it really kind of depends on the person, but but those are those are some big ones. Um, probably the most interesting thing that traveled uh, was a was a rooster eggs, and I'm not I'm still not too sure on exactly the specifics of of how that got to Alaska. But one man that I met and wrote about in that chapter, he um, he raises roosters in Mexico, and and that just he explained to me how that really makes him feel like that's his thing that that's what makes him 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 and so being in alaska far away from mexico and his roosters he was pretty miserable like that so he he brought some to alaska to raise there and and he actually had one in his home when i interviewed him um there's a photograph of him and his rooster in that in that chapter that's just one of my my favorite uh, examples or favorite stories from the book um, so in chapter six, you turn to the organizations and groups that, as you say, quote, freeze the people together in Anchorage. So what do you mean by that term? And, and what are these groups and what role do they play in producing a, a Mexican Alaska? Yeah, so so that chapter, um, that one kind of extends beyond uh, beyond Acuizio and Acuizense specifically, but it but that term it freezes the people together it comes from comes from a, a friend and, and research participant of mine. I, I call her Lola in the book, um, and and she she's lived in both places. Um, she's lived in both uh, Acuizio and in and in Anchorage, and and she's she's one person who has actually like moved back and forth many times like she lived in Anchorage for 10 years and then she moved back you know back to Acuizio and 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 her husband went back and forth and and they had a restaurant in Acuizio and then they had a, a restaurant in Anchorage so that, like she she has moved back and forth between all of these places and anyway we were talking about you know different groups that she's been involved in 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 Alaska and she said you know, different, different groups there, um, in Alaska really bring the community together. And she's the one that said that, um, that it freezes the people together or se congela la gente. It freezes the people together because it's so cold and life can be so difficult. So we need to freeze the people together to, to bring them together. Um, and so in, in this one, I, I work, I, I write about, um, a few different examples. I write about the migrant club um, of Acuitenses in Alaska, and um, you know, in in many cities across the United States, actually, there's there's migrant clubs um, for different communities in in different cities. And so, uh, you know, one of these um, is is in Alaska, and they do kind of fundraising um, for their hometown community. They 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 therefore bring people together as acquiescences in Alaska to, to do fundraising things to benefit their hometown. So that's kind of one example of, of bringing people together, like in a way that they might, like, you know, might not formally otherwise, right? Um, the, another example uh, that I write about in that chapter is the dance group Xochiquetzal Tikkun. And Xochiquetzal Tikkun is amazing. They, they do amazing work in, in Anchorage. And um, the, the name of that group brings together um, uh, the name of the Aztec goddess Xochiquetzal and, and the Denina word for wolf to Tikkun. And so they explicitly kind of bring together those spaces in their, in their name and, and they, they bring Mexican culture to Alaska. That's, that's kind of their whole mandate and actually foster, you know, cultural appreciation in, in general. And, and one thing that I learned from, from people um, is that 
you know, not all not all cities in in the lower forty eight states um, have that have a group like that. I talked to someone who had worked in North Carolina, and she's like, you know, there's nothing really like that there. So it made me realize how how special um, that group is. And and again, they they kind of they bring those spaces together explicitly. So the migrant club, you know, they're they're bringing people together as Aquitenses to fundraise for for Mexico. So Chiquetzal Ticun brings together like. Mexican culture in Alaska, like that's their whole thing. Mexico and Alaska in Alaska restaurant um, has a set of postcards that also does the same thing. It's that same kind of superimposition of of you know Mayan ruins on an Alaskan landscape to like visually represent right um, Mexico in Alaska. Um, and the last one I write about was uh, was the unfortunately now closed um, Mexican consulate in Alaska. And the Mexican consulate did a lot of really um, good work um, to to bring the community together. I guess um, they would they ha- they hosted a lot of and supported a lot of community events um, in Anchorage for not only the Mexican community but the Spanish. Speaking community um, at at large, and so I, I wrote this chapter because I wanted to talk about how you know other ways in which uh, you know besides the everyday life of the people, um, other ways in which Mexico and Alaska are being brought together into a new kind of representation of space. If you want to get academic about it, <laughs> I guess, and again, like recategorize the way we think about these places. And so, um, and so that's, that's what that chapter was about. And yeah, I, I, I actually, um, I, I would go to dance practices with Sochi Quetzal Tikkun every, every week and, and actually got a chance to dance with them, um, uh, at least one time. And, and yeah, I just can't say enough uh, positive stuff about the the work that's that's being done by people there, and actually, since since this book was written, or, or I guess since the research was done, because the book wasn't written that that long ago, but I've been, of course, I uh, keep in touch with people in Alaska, and I see a real like flourishing of of. Um, Mexican culture in in the city. There's um, there's you know there's a newspaper now. There's there was a mariachi group when I was there. I didn't write about them, but um, there's a group of of women who are you know all like really amazing intellectuals in their own right, and and they've really worked to bring the community together. And so um, there could be more to add to this chapter, but you know it's it's already published, right, Carrie? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, there's always the next book, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Uh, but I, I like in, in this interview and then in the book itself, I think you give us this very vivid living portrait of what fieldwork looked like for you. I love that we see you cooking with your informants, dancing with them, um, flying, you know, traveling transnationally, going to buy candy before the flight. Uh, even in the book, there's the scene of you crafting in preparation for a quinceanera. Right. Gluing yep. little I think you're grilling little flowers onto salt and pepper shakers or, or something like that. And, and yeah. I think those vivid those vivid moments remind us this is what ethnography can look like. Um, now, in your conclusion, freedom to move, you describe the transnational futures that people imagine for themselves. So what sorts of futures do they imagine and, and what would need to occur to allow them to realize these dreams? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think people really see their futures as as continuing to move between between these two spaces, or, or that's what people would like. And, and, you know, I think that it's not only um, Aquitenses in Alaska uh, that that want that, you know, I, I think there's, there's lots of people who would really rather have the opportunity to move back and forth more easily between Mexico and the United States, but, but can't for a variety of reasons. But um, anyway, I, I see, um, I see the, these people, um, I, I heard them often say like that they really weren't sure um, what, what they would do in the future that, you know, they, they'd like, they kind of keep the door open in both places, if, if that makes any sense. And actually, I started out that that conclusion um, with calling uh, calling a, a research participant who had moved back to Mexico, right? And I was asking her about how life was going there. And, and they had moved back to Mexico from, from Anchorage with their two kids. Like they they had moved um, back and forth in their lives a few times. Um, Claudia's family, her grandfather was one of those first to go to Alaska. Her father then then followed like followed afterwards, um, and he um, brought his family to um, to Alaska, and then they moved back to Mexico, and then she moved back again, and then you know so so she's she's kind of lived like that. But then she was doing the same thing with her kids. She she wanted them to to learn Spanish. She wanted them to go to school in Mexico uh, like she did because. You know, there's all of these, um, yeah. There's there's a lot of not like there's a lot of things that you you learn at school, right? So um, that are not just like you know writing and math. It's like you know what's the the story of the nation kind of thing and how you fit into that. And so I saw her wanting you know wanting her kids to to live in Mexico. So she so she did move back. But, you know, they, they kept the door open, they kept their home in Anchorage, and they, they didn't, they maybe didn't know for sure what the future would hold, but they but they left the door open. And, and I see that a lot. Although, you know, some things make that door uh, potentially close. So and, and I wrote about uh, in the book, like, you know, people being worried about um, violence in Michoacan, um, being worried about, you know, changes in in the United States, like, you know, and, and just not being welcome there, or, you know, it being difficult to travel because of immigration requirements, or, or who knows what. Um, and, and, you know, we're in that moment now where, uh, you know, you have to wonder with all the kind of anti-immigrant sentiment like what impact that has on on people like this you know in terms of you know where where you feel at home and you know will you be able to move as freely in the future as you are now and 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 that's um that's pretty hard to think about um and i think we all need to work to make sure that that doesn't happen but anyway um yeah i i i i just i that's that's where i see see people at um when i when i concluded the book okay well well thank you i mean you've given our listeners a a good sense of what the book contains and and why it's significant um so uh, now tell me what was the hardest part of writing this book hmm the hardest part of writing this book oh man well i mean i i just you you 
you know, I see this, I'm, I'm holding a copy of it right now and I, I'm kind of looking at it and, and some days I'm like, I still can't believe I, I wrote this because I remember how, um, how many um, kind of drafts of those initial chapters and, you know, how long it took to, I guess, um, take, I, I, I mentioned how I started with the stories, with things from my research that really, um, that, that I really wanted to explore some more, but, you know, that's easier said than done. And having a really good link between, you know, someone's personal experience and, you know, a bigger, um, a, a bigger, you know, theoretical or methodological or how, you know, point, um, that really took a, a lot of work. And, um, I'm, I'm really happy with, with, with how it turned out, but I'd say it's that kind of process that was, that was the hardest part. It, it wasn't doing the research. That was, that was a lot of fun actually. And I, I really, um, I, I would love to have that amount of time to, to do a project like this again sometime. But anyway, um, it, it wasn't doing the research and, and it was, it was more that kind of, um, how do I, how do I take what I, what I saw, um, like the, the time that I spent with people, all of the things that I learned from them and how do I say something bigger about this? Um, how can I link this into theory? How can I, how can I make it something that's, that's goes beyond their lives, but still make it readable enough, um, that, you know, um, that, that one of them could pick it up. And, and that's, that's one thing I will say is I would love to see this book in Spanish someday because some, some people um, are good at reading. Um, some people from Acuizio uh, in Alaska are good at reading in English and, and others not as much. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a funny way to answer your question, but, but that was the hardest part for me. Well, and then, of course, what part was the most fun to write? What part was the most fun to Revisiting all of the... Revisiting all of the things that uh, the time I, I spent with people, right? And, um, you know, it's just, yeah, hearing their voices again as I was reviewing um, interviews or sharing kind of initial findings and, and talking to people, that part was, that part was really fun. Um, I, I, when I was writing, when I was first writing my dissertation and early drafts of the book, I was able to go back and forth um, here and there. I, I um, was able to go and, and, and visit people again and talk to them about what I was working on. And, and that part was really, that was the most enjoyable part, I'd say. And just like just doing the research, um, being there with people and, and you know, not, um, not having to worry about the writing part yet. <laughs> um, uh, I guess, yeah, that, that part was really fun, too. So the most fun part of the writing process was not doing the writing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, maybe now that you say that, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> so if readers take home only one thing from the book, what would you want it to be? Well, again, I, I want to go back to that, the kind of some of the points in the introduction. And, and you know, I talk about expectation um, a lot in the introduction and like our expectations about people and places. And I really would like anybody who reads this book to, to close it at the end with, oh, wow, like, I really need to revisit what I think Alaska is like. And I really can rethink what I think Mexicans in the United States are like, because I don't know, I, I 
watch the news just like everyone else. And, and I, I watch TV. And, and if you take Alaska, you there's like a million shows about Alaska. Um, but none of them talk about the cultural diversity. And, and I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about not, uh, you know, uh, the Alaska Native peoples, um, you know, there's diverse peoples throughout the state, but as well, um, you know, people from all over the world, really, who, who live and work in Alaska and, and have lived and worked in Alaska um, historically, too. So, you know, I, I, I would hope that people would take away, you know, like, oh, okay, well, this is this place is different than I thought it would be and, and apply that to other places, too. And I'd also like people to think about, you know, if, if, you know, what, what the experience of Mexicans in the United States is like, I, I think this group of people is really different um, from, from what, what a lot of people would expect the the kind of multi-generational frame the like the dual citizenship and and the, the status of these people economically um but i think you know maybe if if you if you look you would find that it's actually not not that different it just doesn't appear in the literature as much or it doesn't show up in the news um as much so yeah i think that would that would be yeah. Anyway, that's my main point. I just, I really want to um, get people to rethink um, how people are, how people from Mexico are living, working and, and imagining their futures in the United States and, and rethink what, what places are like, especially what, you know, what Alaska is like, obviously, that's what I wrote about. Well, thank you. I, I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with me. And before I let you go, what do you think your next project will be? Well, that's a that's an interesting question because actually, since I um, since I finished working on this project, but was still putting the book together, I've taken on a few additional projects. So I um, I, I worked for for two years on a project um, here in Canada. Uh, there were um, separate hospitals for Indigenous peoples for a number of years. And people in those hospitals um, made art and crafts. And so I was a participant on a postdoc project. I was looking at where these arts and crafts ended up and trying to understand that art and craft system a bit better. This was a post-war thing, um, 1940s to 1960s, more or less. And so, um, and so I, I did some, some work around around that and and we'll have a publication coming out about that soon. And it's interesting because it seems like it's kind of a different topic entirely, but it still has to do with these mo- these linkages between north and south and the kinds of um, ways we think about northern spaces and and southern southern ones and 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 the kind of connections between them and mobilities of people. And so that was kind of what I um, what I what I was working on in, in that project. Um, and, and that really like learning more about, um, you know, specifically that the colonialism in Canada basically, um, has set me on a whole, um, whole other path. Um, I recently wrote a list of 150 acts of reconciliation with a, with a colleague of mine, Crystal Frazier, who's Gwich'in from the Northwest Territories. Um, so she's, she's Indigenous and we worked together to write this list. And for those of you who maybe aren't Canadian, um, Canada's in a moment right now where, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of push towards building better relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And, and there was a, a residential school settlement. Um, so 
uh, settlement process that triggered a whole um, whole entity called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to try and, you know, recognize how much uh, Canadian structures and Canadian society and the way we talk to and about each other really has to has to change here. And so I've been uh, really lucky to be involved in that work. And our 150 acts was really, um, you know, at things that everyday people could do. And over 60,000 people have looked at that list so far. And so I think that'll probably be my most read piece of work, um, actually, um, which which was exciting. And, and, and really, like, that work has brought me here to Yellowknife, um, where I'm working on a renewal of a, of a parenting program for the territory. But the cool thing about that is, is I can, I can bring the work that I've, I've done on reconciliation and and like the what I what I'd learned about the history of colonialism here in Canada, together with um, the research that I did about immigrants in the north, and because uh, we want to talk to new new Canadians in the Northwest Territories too about what they need as parents, what they'd like as parents, what kind of supports and services and all that. And so um, where I'm at right now, it's funny, really brings together. Ev- everything in a lot of ways. So I'm, um, I'm here doing, doing this more applied work now. And uh, meanwhile, continuing to talk about my book and, um, and, and yeah, that's, that's what I'm up to. Well, both of those projects sound wonderful. And so I look forward to uh, reading more about, about those um, in your future publications. So thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Carrie, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Sarah. Bye-bye. This is Carrie Lane. Thank you for listening to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.